Hi, I'm Paul Farron, and this is Film Ireland Podcast with John Borman. He's going to be talking to me about his life and his new book, Conclusions. So please do stay around and enjoy this podcast. Thank you very much. John's going to be here in the IFI on March 12th. It should be noted for a public interview to celebrate the release of his book. I, I really love the book. It, quite a beautiful um emotional piece i thought an amazing um companion piece to your adventures of a suburban boy um, yes thank you when did you really start working on this particular book well i started working on it um nearly two years ago and i gradually uh put items into it and then i tried to <clears throat> make kind of sense of the whole thing i wanted you know the reason i did it and, and why i called it conclusions was because I was trying to draw some conclusions from my life and my work to see if there's any pattern there. Or, and um, that's really why I did it. And um, uh, so it, it gradually grew and took shape. And what do you think? Do you think you discovered a pattern of, in your work or in your passions? Well, well I, when I was really looking... At what was valuable, what really counted, and it, in the end, it comes down to, you know, the love that one feels, uh, f- affection for uh, friends, and whatever kindness uh, that I've been able to give to others. And uh, yes, so finally, when you come to to count things up, or when or why I did anyway, count to count things up, I found that. Uh, that's what really counts. So, well, it has that sense of being. It's like a, it's like a confessional without a sinner. It's a very beautiful piece, and that part of you, as you say, that, that humanity and friendship, it it kind of speaks to your work. I've always been. I've been a fan of yours since I was quite young. Before I even knew who John Borman was, I can remember my late night BBC Two Leo the Last and going, who is this and, and who is this filmmaker? And that was when I first saw you, I think. Um, yeah. As, and uh, that that kind of heart and soul comes through all your work. Um, I, I think it might sound silly to say this, but Lee, working, the ability to work with Lee Marvin the way you did speaks volumes about the way you address you, other human beings. Yes. I, yes, well, that's... <clears throat> That's right. Well, that's how Point Blank really came to be what it is, because um, Lee and I were both given this lousy script. And, <laughs> and Lee said, what, what do you think of this the script? I said, well, it's pretty terrible. He said, I agree with you. What are we talking about? So I said, well, the char- character is interesting to me. So we um, started talking and we had a number of meetings and it gradually emerged really that it was the the story was a kind of metaphor for his uh, his wartime experience because he fought the Japanese yes through the Pacific and um, the the way he's been brutalized and and was attempting to recover his humanity was really the, like the story of the, this piece and so that's what gave it a lot of its power. Was that he it was feeling it very deeply, and it I think that came across. Hello, 
Whose is it? Brewster's lost the organization. He's at the meetings. Nobody lives in it, that's for sure. Brewster, how do you know he won't show up? He will. That's why we're here. I'm waiting for him. So what am I doing here? I thought you'd be safer with me than you would be by yourself. And when do we expect our host? Any time. Maybe not until morning. You'll ask him for the money, he'll say no, and you'll kill him. Yeah, something like that. What do you think this was, a pitch? Forget it. You forget it! Yeah, a lot of people kind of know him simply for playing heavies, and he's actually a kind of deeper and more interesting man than that. I'm surprised he never actually directed himself. And you also got him to do to explore that kind of that exploration in an even more stronger way in Hell in the Pacific. How did that project yeah. come about? That was a very tough experience because I had a long and bitter fight with Tashira Mafuni. And who had a different view of the film, and and uh, I had a Japanese crew, and every time I corrected him, it was a loss, a kind of loss of face mm-hmm. for him in front of his crew. You know, this Englishman was correcting him and telling him that he was doing it wrong. So that was a hard and bitter struggle. It was an. In- an interesting time then because there was so many kind of uh, reappraisals of World War Two coming out in the 70s that were trying to be um, kind of uh, re-looking at it in a different yes. way. And it was very hard with Japanese interaction. I, mean, I think Tora 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 was an attempt at that as well, which wasn't as ambitious. But they tried to get Japanese involvement and it kind of fell apart a little bit. Yes. I think it was, you know, the film that attempted to bring the two sides together in a way reconciliation um and was mifune the the hardest part of that film for you that kind of oh, yeah. barrier and that yeah he was and you know we, because every scene we start every scene i had to talk him round to doing it the way i wanted and he got we got we got behind and at one point the producers arrived because they became aware of this struggle going on. And um, they felt that the only answer to this problem was to get a new, uh, change directors. So, oh, wow. so, they, so they went to Mifune and they said, um, you'll be glad to hear that we're, we're thinking of uh, uh, removing Borman and changing directors. So he said, "I couldn't. I couldn't agree to that." <laughs> they said, but, "But you, you don't get on with him." And they said, "He said, yeah, no, I don't." <laughs> so, I so he said, I, "They said, well, what's the problem?" He said, "Well, the problem is that I, Borman, and I went to the tea house, and we toasted in a bottle of sake." Mm-hmm. And I I did, agreed to do the film with him, so that's what I have to stick to. <laughs> a man of honor. So they, he said, it's a matter of honor, and the producer said, "Hey, listen, this is Hollywood. Honor doesn't come into it." <laughs> anyway, that was it. He stuck to it, and I, when I started working again, I I thought we'd be pals, and but it turned out it was just exactly the same. The, the fight went on every 
I came across it. You you quote uh, Kurosawa, a conversation you have, and it was a beautiful quote. Kurosawa said to you in English that you don't direct Mafuni, you point him like a missile. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but tell me this: you brought so many projects to this country even before anyone knew who John Berman was in this country. And I think even Leo the Last was was there was post production done here, was there? Well, Leo the Last. That was how I came to Ireland because we. Mm. I needed to do the post production, and and um, that's where I fell in love with Wicklow, the Wicklow Mountains. <laughs> they say Wicklow. If you're not careful when you go there, you'll never get out again. That's right. Well, certainly in my case, that was fifty, more than fifty years ago. I'm still here, just about. I also saw some beautiful illustrations in your book. I take it they're your illustrations. Um, of... No, they're not. They're done by, did you know Paolo Tullio? Oh, Paolo Tullio did those. Oh, fantastic. His wife did them. Oh, his yes, wife. Sue Morley. Susan Morley, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're, be they're beautiful illustrations. And uh, your, your poetry is, is quite beautiful as well. I, I like the way you, you tricked us all the way with your wonderful memoirs. And then you threw in your poetry, and it's very, very nice, very profound. Wow, thank you. Yeah. So, when did the love affair with Ireland stick, and you trapped your entire family here? That was that. Did you think that was you were going to stay here at that point? Well, I never. You know, it became our home, but I, I ne once I was here, I never wanted to leave, and I still don't. Um, and although I went off, you know, making films around the world. I always came back to do the post-production here. And this was my life. And I brought up seven children in this house. Wow. So it's very, very special for me. But you've also been, I think, one of the, if I, if forgive me for uh, promising, but you're one of the, the greatest gifts that Ireland ever had in its film industry in the, in the 70s and 80s. You brought so much work and you inspired so many people. I mean, Excalibur alone, which I watched last week for the first time in a long time. Um, I fill my love, by the way. A lot of great memories for me. I, I remember going to see it in the Carlton about six times. Oh, I cheated. Really? I used to stay and watch it twice in a row. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but the list there of actors, Irish and other, is, yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah, and I love... A lot of t Irish technicians got their first job on that picture, and and also a lot more on earliest on Zardoz. On, on Zardoz, yeah. Um, yeah. Th one particular actor I love, and I, I think um, he kind of binds. For me, Excalibur is is almost as much a tale about Merlin and Percival as it is to the so-called main characters. Yes, because they seem to be the kind of. The narrative glue of the story would be those two, and and possibly Morgana as well, as opposed to the the kind of yes. royalty of the story. But Nicol Williamson, uh, another guy, you, you like these tough actors that you seem to manage, because he would to me be the uh, English equivalent of Lee Marvin in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, yes. Well, <clears throat> I always try and get the best actors I can, and that was that's uh, some of them. But, but it was, you know, I think that um, Liam Neeson was, I saw him playing um, on the stage um, mm -hmm. and I I cast him immediately because he had 
you know, power and strength, which I needed for that role. And and uh, then there was uh, all the others, you know. And, and uh, again, Gabriel Byrne, I think one of his first prominent film roles as Uther. That's right, yeah. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Forged when the world was young, and bird and beast and flower were one with man, and death was but a dream. Did that film directly grow out of your attempts to uh, adapt Lord of the Rings, or was it just coincidence that you were well, in this well, realm? I, well, I did, you know, <clears throat> United Artists had the rights of Lord of the Rings, and they asked me uh, to do it. And um, I spent the best part of a year with Rosper Pallenberg um, writing writing it. And, yeah. um, and But when we were ready to, when we finally got together, ready to shoot, UA were in difficulties with money, and they were appalled at how much it was going to cost. So... <laughs> I went, and then I took it to Disney. You know, I thought they, they, they and he did. They Disney at that time didn't want to do it either. I, I didn't, so I, I, I couldn't get it going. And indeed, uh, Peter was, uh, you know, he had it, um, mm. and uh, his agent, who's also my agent, okay. Ken Cammins, went round all the studios with it, and they all turned it down, and then. He was in despair, and so Ken said, "Look, let me have go go around once more, one more time." And he went around all the studios again, and they all turned it down. And and the last, his last stop was uh, the people who actually did it, you know, who yeah. happened to be a big big fan of the book, and he agreed to do it, and he he insisted on doing it as as three films, not the two films that they planned. And that was a very brave decision because if the first one had failed, he would yes. have had been stuck with the other two. So <clears throat> anyway, that was the history of it, and Peter got it going and did it very well. He did. Yeah. I think those first three definitely were uh, are worth seeing and still kind of stay in the mind. Yeah, excellent. excellent. But Excalibur yeah. then, so that you kind of did that start so, a few that, years later. Well, so. I did a lot of, re, you know, so don't forget this was before CGI and all that. Exactly, yeah. So I spent a lot of time um, going over, working out the way of doing it. And um, Excalibur was done, all of the effects, all the special effects were done in the camera. We, there was nothing post in post at all, and mm-hmm. um, you know things like um, uh, ghost glass and things like that. And uh, so we, and it's uh, in, re, in a recent, uh, well, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, screening of Excalibur, some somebody said, "Oh, all all that was done in the in the computer, wasn't it?" <laughs> How naive people are. It's like yeah. they, they think nothing existed before computers. Yeah. And it's it's people are very very cynical about 
felt cinema in our eyes because it's in a way it's lost its innocence because everyone knows that like, you can make up all kinds of things but do you find that the, that energy as you said it's, it was made in camera and pretty much everything you're looking at is very human efforts there's nothing kind of artificially designed even with the armor and that which was quite heavy i remember reading the, the, yeah because i mean it was it there was a it was real metal for a start wasn't it yeah and you know you it's making a suit of armor for an actor is it's like designing a suit you know it's got to fit yes if it doesn't fit it can be very very painful you know it can stick into you it can uh it's got to fit pretty well so all those suits of armor were fitted to the actors and so that was big and nowadays they actually have cgi costumes can you believe that yeah which is kind of because everything affects the movement and how the actors work i mean do you think that the, the green screen thing is taken away from performance or just changing it for actors do you think actors care? They feel that, yeah, I can pretend till the cows come home. I don't need to feel a real sword in my hand. I can happily have some kind of prop. And... I, well, I, I, don't, I don't know really the answer yeah. to that one. But, but it, obviously in these, t, in these TV series, the high-end TV series yes. where they um, have, you know, um, uh, a pretty good budget and all that, they still... <clears throat> shoot 10 minutes a day as opposed to three minutes a day you shoot on a day on a feature film and um and they do it and they do so much of it in front of a green screen that it, it must be very difficult because they're, they're getting no help from the surroundings are they yes exactly i think uh was it mckellen who played uh gandalf in the hobbit he was finally yeah. doing scenes with all his dwarf actors and it drove him to tears, apparently, because he was just surrounded <laughs> by green screen, and he didn't know where he was looking or what he was looking at. Yeah. And it, it actually, he actually nearly had a bit of a breakdown. <laughs> 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 but uh, to to move on a little bit, um, your memoirs films are quite beautiful as well, and it's, it's you you do have. I'm sure some some academic is going to mark your periods where you've gone from your existentialist work to your kind of more poetic work of Excalibur. And then I think Emer Emerald Forest came after that, didn't it? Which Emerald is, Forest. Which is, it, it's both, it, it's almost coming from that romantic thing, but it's very political film as well. Though it, I, I don't like the word, use the word political, but it is. It has a comment to make on what the destruction of the rainforest. and yeah. So that was a huge undertaking. I mean, you've never let endurance get in the way of telling a story. I mean, you've taken on some of the most amazing yeah. challenges. Well, I don't, not anymore. I'm 87. <laughs> I'm 87. And uh, all I could do now is write a bit of poetry. Well, I think you deserve to rest after all the, all those challenges <laughs> between rivers yeah. and forests yes. and tough actors. You know, you really have covered an amazing amount of ground and you never kind of kowtow to any commercial attitudes. I think you had the confidence in, in what you were going again, but you were you never went that route, that truly mainstream commercial route that a lot of guys were No, I, 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 I really left Hollywood. I, I, was, I stayed in Hollywood for point blank, and um, then I went back to, to London, and I did um, Leo, Leo last I did, yeah. And oddly enough, 
You know what? Something very interesting. I, I don't know, but there's a, you know, there's a, that street was, um, I had a, the, the, the running of that street because it, they'd been evacuated because it was, it was going to be pulled down. Okay. And so I was able to paint it black and, and, it, and, and that's, that's where in the story, that's where all the, all the West Indians were living. That's right. And, um, Anyway, I just there's two guys who desperately want to put a screen on near the last one because, and they told me that that street was pulled down to in order to build the Grenfell Towers. Oh gosh! And so they, in a way, the story I was telling there was all about those people that actually ended up in 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 Grenfell Towers. So it was rather shook me to discover that. Yeah. And uh, oh, gosh, I, I never knew that. I said like that film is it. When did you have that screening of it? By the way, did you actually go and see? It well, yourself at that I'm, time? they're they're gonna they're they're arranging a screening of it, um, and they're telling they're making a documentary telling the story of 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 the film. You know, making it. So I'm very glad. It's being revived, excavated from the grave. <laughs> it's just, that's fantastic. I mean, and and well deserved as well. As I said, like of of all your of all your films that you feel fondness for that didn't really make the mark, would that be one of them? I mean, did that have a success? Well, when it came out? yes. What happened with that picture when it came out? The the company that made it went broke. It was, it was part of UA. And when they went broke, that uh, in the end, um, Warners took over their assets and their debts. Mm -hmm. And so, but the ownership of the picture didn't, they didn't quite get the ownership. It was contested by someone else. And it became mired in a, law case oh, okay. which went on and on so that's why it's so difficult to see I see and it's probably still wrapped up in that quagmire yes it's just been dragged on but that was your you got the best director at Cannes for that didn't you I did yeah yeah um, would you say that your influences have always been European have, was ever any American directors that you were interested in that you think in, in fact, no, I, I just think yes. That I, I, that I withdrew from the notion from the mainstream. I mean, I made Deliverance. I made uh, for Warners, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, and um, but I made that all on location. I never went to never went to Hollywood. <laughs> I made it all on location, <laughs> and I went back. I took the. I didn't. When I went home, I took the train to New York from from uh, Atlanta, and took a ship back to Ireland. And you avoided LA altogether. I've, I've, you, I read yeah. in your book that you don't trust the weather in LA. I think it's a very good point you make. <laughs> But also, I mean, you got an amazing performance out of Burt Reynolds. I mean, not that he was not beyond the performance, but it's probably one of the more serious roles he did, certainly at that time. And it was a film that broke him out. 
I yeah. know he's a terrible it, man for stealing your anecdotes and telling lies, but I know you're very fond of each other. And he said you were one of the best directors yeah. he ever worked with. That's right. <laughs> he did, but it was a, he was absolutely um, outrageous in his <laughs> in his autobiography. Uh-huh. His, there's a story I told about Lee Marvin. We we were having we had dinner on mm-hmm. uh, at Jack's on the beach. Yeah, in Venice Pier, and Lee got drunk, and I insisted that I drove the car back, <laughs> and and he he we we fought for the keys, you know. I eventually got the keys, <laughs> and finally, uh, and then in order, then he wouldn't get in the car. Oh, so typical. Eventually, he climbed up onto the roof of the car. And um, it had a roof rack on it, you know. <laughs> and I, so it was now two o'clock in the morning, and I drove down the length of the pier, and I got out the end. I said, Nick, get, get down now, Lee. Get in the car. And he wouldn't get in the car. So it, it was not, 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 nothing much about So I drove, and he lived along the Pacific Coast Highway, mm-hmm. about five miles. So I, I drove fairly slowly along the Pacific Coast Highway, and I got pulled over by a cop <laughs> on a motorbike, and he came up to the window, and he went. I went on the window, and he said, uh, "He said, do you know you've got Lee Marvin on your roof?" <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, that I told that story so many times. Like he's uh, and Bert sent me his autobiography, and I I'm reading through it. <laughs> and I come to this, this story, except that he's driving the car instead of me. He just stole the story, <laughs> out, you know, outrageously. And he, That's so, hilarious. I'd say there's yeah. many people reading his biography and going the same thing that you were doing. It's <laughs> 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 just a smorgasbord anecdote stolen from all over the place. As I said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> and the truth being, it wasn't him that it happened to. Yeah. So, um, John, thank you so much for um, taking this call. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, the book has been launched here. Has it already? I, th- I thought I saw it in the bookshop there. Well, it's today. not. It's not. Uh, it's launched. It was launched in London on the twentieth of February. But I think the launch here is supposed to be uh, later on the on the. I think the ten, the tenth. And um, are you? What did your family think of their this little well, piece? Oddly enough, there's a story about that because my my daughter Lola is doing her PhD in mm-hmm. literature. So I said, when I was writing the book, I said, uh, "You you better be. Would you be my literary executor because of what she's doing?" So mm-hmm. yes, she said. So I sent her three drafts of the book, and she never read them. And I told her, I told her to to read <laughs> it on behalf of the family. And if there's anything there that offend, was offensive, she should tell me, and I'll I'll change it. But she never read, never got round to reading it. She had a lot to read for her PhD, oh, and. So she'll have to buy a copy like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a beautiful book. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I learned a lot. Well, that's that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, and 
Well, it's good to hear and good to speak to you. And thank you. You too, John. Thank you very All much right. for taking our call. Goodbye.